This morning we're in the fourth chapter of Mark. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 20, uh, but I'm going to read uh, verse 3 through 9. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was sourced, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Is this thing working okay? This mic, it's not not ready for my voice, I guess. Um, so, I'm not the usual guy to be here if you're uh, if you're visiting with us, new around. Uh, although, I guess if you've been here just in the past month or so, uh, you wouldn't know who the normal guy was. Uh, uh, so, a good portion of our pulpit supply bench is in the mission field right now, um, but I'm excited to get to to share with you on Mark. Chapter 4, um, and the parable of the, the soils, as I like to call it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, when I ask you a question, though, and this is probably something you've all experienced, maybe you've heard something, like you've heard it, but you didn't really hear it. You understand the distinction I'm making? Maybe, okay, let's think about it with kids. Maybe this will be helpful. Um, you're talking to a kid. Uh, and they are clearly distracted by something else, and you say, hey, listen, and they say, I heard what you said, and they could repeat it back to you even, maybe, but they weren't actually listening. They weren't really hearing what you said. Sometimes we can all be that way, right? We have to actively, intentionally, like, put on our listening ears, like we're in first grade again, so that we can not just hear there's lots of things to hear, but we can not just hear, but so that we can actually like listen and understand. Well, our, our text today deals with that exactly. That's what we're going to be seeing. And this is kind of a unique text to get to preach on because typically when you're, when you're prepping a sermon, you kind of do this, um, for me anyway, I do like this inductive study method where you, you start with observing the text and that's kind of like interrogating. Um, you're like who, what, when, where, why, how. Um, you're trying to figure out like what does the text say. Um, you're, you're just looking at repeated words and phrases, noting patterns, key themes, ideas. It's like what does it say? 
And then you kind of move into this interpretation realm where you're trying to figure out what the text means. And so at that point, you're asking questions about context. Like, what is the whole context of the Bible? What's the context of the book I'm in? Um, What's the historical context, the cultural context, all those kind of things? You're asking, like, are there other scriptures that speak to the same ideas that we're looking at here? And um, what do the original languages say? Is there a commentary that I can go and look at? Somebody who's studied this really deeply who can help me understand it better. And then, if you're preaching... Your job is to kind of take what you've observed in the text, what you've figured out interpretation-wise, and then say, hey guys, this is what this text is all about. This is what God's Word is saying. Here's how you can apply it. Here's how you can take that text and live it out. And, of course, in some texts that's more difficult than it is with others because some are really difficult interpretationally and people disagree on them and, and there's all kinds of problems there. But in this instance, in this text, we have something that's unique. Um, Because once we get to the interpretation step for this parable, the heavy lifting has been done for us. All the hard work has already been taken care of, and by somebody who's way better and more reliable than any commentary that you can pick up uh, at the Baptist bookstore. Because when it comes to the parable of the sower, Jesus tells us what it means. He interprets it for us. But that doesn't mean that there's not plenty of other stuff for us to pull out of this, and we have to also recognize that there's many ways that we can take it and apply it. But before we kind of dive into that, let's pray together. Lord God, we're grateful for this time we have to look at your word, to see this wonderful parable of Jesus as he opens up for us this wonderful truth that the the mysteries of the kingdom, the secrets of the kingdom are revealed to those who who know Christ. I pray that you will help us to center our minds and our hearts on him and his glory this morning and help us to be the good soil that receives the word and grows. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, kind of by way of outline, just to help you get the text straight in your head, we're in Mark chapter 4. You can open your Bibles there. Um, And you can kind of look at the text with me. I think it'll be helpful to you. Um, Verses 1 and 2, we kind of set the scene. So we have, um, we're beside the Sea of Galilee. We've seen this before. We've already been here. Um, Jesus is teaching to a huge crowd. If you've been in Mark with us, you know that's familiar. This isn't new. Um, Then in verses 3 through 9, we get a little snippet of the specific teaching that Mark has decided to to share with us. Um, And that's the parable of the sower, what Serlio just read. Then in verses 10 through 12, um, the scene kind of changes, and we go from the shore of of Galilee to somewhere else, some place where Jesus is alone with his disciples, um, and he explains the purpose of the parables to them. And then in verses 13 through 20, also apparently in um, in that alone gathering, Jesus then explains to them what the parable of the sower is all about. So if you notice, there's kind of this what we saw last week also, we called it a Markin sandwich, and that's the technical term, um, where you have one thing at the top and then another thing in the middle and then something that's like the first thing at the bottom and it kind of makes a sandwich, right? That's, we all understand a sandwich, yes? Everybody good? Okay, so um, Mark does this all the time. And last time we saw it, we had Jesus' family, uh, and then we saw the Pharisees and their response to Jesus, and then we see Jesus' family again, right? So that's, that's the structure we have here. We have parable, First, 
what do parables mean in general? What's the purpose of parables? And then that parable explained. All right, so that's our structure. And as we're looking through all of this, here's what, here's what I think we see, okay? We see that understanding the secrets of the kingdom of God is only possible through knowing Jesus. Understanding the secrets of the kingdom of God is only possible by knowing Jesus. So let's jump into the text. Verse 1, we're going to look at the setting first, see where we are. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. All right, we've seen this huge crowd before. Y'all remember this, right? Back in chapter 3, verse 7, we saw this huge crowd coming from um, all over the place. Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, Tyre, Sidon in the north, right? They're coming from all over to see Jesus, to be close to him, to be healed, to have demons cast out, right? They're coming to Jesus. But Jesus has already indicated multiple times that his purpose isn't so much the healing, isn't so much the exercising. Those are the fruits of his ministry, and those are absolutely things that testify to his power and authority. But remember, when Jesus first came, right, we saw back in chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, repent and believe the gospel, that the kingdom of God is at hand. His purpose is that he's come to proclaim. He's come to preach. That's what he's here for. And then, remember when Jesus goes and he's off praying by himself, and Peter comes and finds him, and he says, hey, where are you? Everybody's looking for you. Uh, the, the implication is so that you can come and do some more miracles. And Jesus says, let's go to another town and preach there because that's why I've come. That's why I'm here. So Jesus' purpose is to preach. It's to proclaim the kingdom. So to avoid being crushed by this mob of people uh, here on the shore, Jesus gets into a boat, sits just offshore so that he can preach from there. Now, there's practical reasons for that. Um, one, lots of people crowding around, like, is legitimately dangerous for Jesus, his disciples, uh, and for the people who are there. Um, but also, there's evidence that the way in which, like, the actual shore was shaped, um, you can Google pictures of um, Galilee Amphitheater or whatever, and, and you can see this. It's like the shape of it might have actually provided kind of this natural amphitheater which would allow Jesus' voice to project better to this large crowd of people. So by sitting offshore and preaching to them as they're sitting there, they can all hear him. So there's, you know, multiple practical pieces. Um, but also, I wonder... And once we get, not next week, but the week following, where we're looking at Jesus calming the storm, this, this is definitely in mind, but I think it might be in mind here. Because think about Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, verse 3, it says this, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Jesus would have certainly known that psalm, and I, I can't help but to think he was probably thinking about that as he sat on a boat teaching this crowd about the kingdom of God. And the parable that he teaches, that Mark decides to give to us, um, is familiar. It's probably one that everybody's heard, right? Most of you kids, when, when Mr. Shirley was up here reading that parable, you're like, oh, I know this one, right? Everybody's familiar with the parable of the sower, so, I'm going to read it again, but this time, as you're listening to it, I don't want you to, to think about what you know it means. Because we've heard this before, we've read it before, we, we're familiar with it, uh, and we're so familiar with it that we miss it. 
a little bit, I think. We miss how the audience would have heard it. So try your best to just hear me tell a story about dirt and seeds and a farmer, okay? And don't make it spiritual at all. Just hear it, okay? Here we go. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it it sprang up immediately since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And then other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and they choked it, and it yielded no grain. And then other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, so that's a simple story, right? It's really straightforward. It's not a difficult concept to get. This is agriculture, something that people in this area would have been very familiar with. Maybe we're not so much anymore, but all of us probably have a good idea of how growing plants works. You need a seed, you need dirt, you need sun, you need rain, you need those things, and plants grow. This man is out sowing seed, he's trying to grow a crop, okay? He's scattering the seed everywhere in the hopes that maybe one of it will actually make something grow. And Jesus says that there are four types of soil. Verse 4, he says there's soil along the path. In verse 5, he says there's rocky ground soil. In verse 7, he says there's soil among the thorns. And then in verse 8, he says there's good soil. Four types of soil. And each of those types of soil receives the exact same type of seed. But the different characteristics of the soil have an effect on the growth of the seed. The seed that falls on the hard-packed soil... It can't get into the ground and germinate, and so a bird comes and eats it. doesn't even get a chance to start. The soil among the rocks is not very deep, and so while the plant's like, yay, I can, blow, I can grow, there's soil here, the roots can't go very deep, and so it withers away whenever the sun comes out. The soil with the thorns. Obviously, that soil's capable of producing plants. The thorns are growing just fine. The plant was growing, but then... The thorns are competing with it for that, the same nutrients, the same sunlight, the same water, the same nutrients in the soil. And so that one gets choked out as it's fighting for survival. But then the good soil receives the seed, it nourishes the seed, and it grows big and strong, and it produces grain. It produces fruit 30, 60, 100 times more than what the farmer, what the sower had initially sown. It's seeds and soils. It's really simple. But obviously, it's more complex than that. Because this Jesus guy, he's not known to just tell stories about random people doing random things. His stories have meaning. They have purpose. They, They mean something more, don't they? Surely they mean something more. And it is more complex than that. And this is, in Mark, one of the longest sections that we have of Jesus's teaching. Jesus Jesus doesn't teach a lot in Mark. Mark um, is choosing, though, to provide a very specific parable for a specific reason. It's not an accident that this is the parable. He's not like, you know, like he's going through the list of parables, like, oh, what's that? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I like that one about the the, the sower. Like, no. He he gives us four of them. We're going to see three more next week. 
And they all have a specific reason why he chooses to include those four. Because we know that in Matthew, we see a lot more parables. Uh, Luke and John both include lots more teaching from Jesus in general. But Mark doesn't give us much teaching. He's, He's more about the action of it. And so he chooses here to give this one parable of the sower as his primary bit of teaching from Jesus. So there's a reason for that. So why would he have chosen this? Remember, each of the gospel writers is building a portrait of Jesus. Their goal is to help you see him. And they want to show you something about him. That's why they're not all the same. right? Because they're not all doing the same thing. They're all sharing the gospel of Jesus, but they're all giving us a different portrait of him. And so... Mark recognized that this parable, in this moment, was the perfect piece of that portrait to help complete the picture, to help it be clear to us exactly who Jesus is. So, in order to understand kind of the context of this painting that Mark is making of Jesus, I think we have to get a little context. So let's step back for just a second and think about what we've seen so far in Mark. And if you haven't been here with us for our study of Mark, this will be helpful to you as well. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus teaching in the synagogue, um, and he teaches with authority. Um, and we see him healing, we see him casting out demons, doing miraculous things. And generally, the response of people is awe and wonder. Like, wow, this guy has such authority and power, we've never seen anything like this. And in chapter 2, you see the tension start to build, because we see Jesus forgive sins, right? He forgives the sins of the paralytic. Uh, And then we see him uh, feasting with tax collectors and sinners, people who are unclean and not, not good to hang out with. We see him violating uh, the, the, the Pharisees' uh, Sabbath restrictions, right? You, you couldn't do certain things on the Sabbath, and here he's doing these things. He's healing people on the Sabbath. Then in chapter 3, you see him teaching, and apparently his healing power is wide known because the people are coming to him, they're flocking to him for healing and, uh, and for exorcism of demons. But Jesus, instead of staying there and doing all the healing, he retreats to a mountain where he chooses 12 men to be his apostles who will continue his ministry. And then we see the scribes and the Pharisees claiming that he's doing everything by the power of demons, that he's possessed by a demon. And we even see his family think he's gone crazy. And so through all that, what are we seeing? The arrival of Jesus on the scene brings division And it demands decision. Because everyone is hearing this teaching. All these people are coming and listening. They're hearing what he's saying, and they have to do something with it. They have to decide, is he a wise teacher? Is he a great healer, a powerful exorcist? Is he a lawbreaker? Is he a heretic? Is he a demon-possessed miracle worker? Or is he actually the Son of God? Is he actually the Messiah who we've been waiting for? And what we see Jesus doing is he's making it clear that there's really only two groups. Those who have ears to hear and those who don't. And what we see is is it's not the people who are in those groups aren't who we would expect to be in those groups. Because Jesus is choosing to feast with sinners instead of fast with Pharisees. He's choosing ordinary guys like fishermen and tax collectors and revolutionaries to be his inner circle. He's not choosing the religious elite. He's picking people whom he desires 
out of his disciples to be these special apostles. He told the disciples who were sitting close to him, right, who were listening to his word, who were, who were there with him, knowing him, he said, you guys are more my family than my blood relatives are. He's proclaiming the same message to all these different people, but they're responding in different ways. And this parable explains exactly why that's happening. Because it's all about the soil. Now I know, next in your Bible is verse 10. And if, we were a, if you were a Jewish audience, this sandwich thing would make perfect sense. Um, you guys would, would be able to handle it. We would all be, feel much more comfortable there. Because um, this is something that's used a lot in Scripture. Go look at the, at the Psalms, for example. It's called a chiasm. Okay, we're calling it a sandwich because that's a little bit easier to say. Um, but this chiastic structure where you have things that are at the bottom and the top and then it moves in like this into a key point in the middle, right? That's a structure throughout, throughout Scripture that you can see. Very common in Jewish language and writing. Not in ours. Our culture doesn't get that. We're like, hold on, man, put the main point at the end. That's where it's supposed to be. So that's what I'm going to do. So I'm going to skip verses 10 through 12 for just a second, and I'm going to come back to them at the end. Uh, So let's jump now to verse 13, and we'll get the other piece of bread, and then we'll eat the meat last, okay? (laughs) Verse 13, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now notice there what he's saying. He's saying, this parable, understanding this, will help you understand everything else. Okay, that's important. Verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But then they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. All right, so now you understand the parable. I don't have to do any more work on that. No, okay. Let's talk about it for just a second. The sower, who's the sower? The sower sows the word. That's what he's doing. So who is this sower? Well, he's a preacher, obviously, right? He's a proclaimer of the gospel. And in this instance, I think the natural thing to say is that this is Jesus. Jesus is the prime sower. He's talking about himself here, first and foremost. And he is sowing the word. The word. Okay, let's go there for just a second. Um, this language is used in the Bible. We, in, in, our, in our kind of Christian culture, we use the word word a lot. What do we mean? First, it refers to God's actual words, right? So remember, when the prophets are sent by God in the Old Testament, what, what are they doing? They are sent to proclaim the word of God. So literally, they are speaking the words that God told them to say. And so it is literally God's words that they're saying. There's also the way that we use this, this term to refer to the Bible itself, right? We use this all the time. We'll say the Word of God, uh, and, we'll, and we'll hold up our Bibles as the way to say this is the Word of God. After we read our Scripture passage, we say this is the Word of the Lord, right? It's the Word. Um, and more specifically, 
in the Old Testament especially, that term was used to refer to the law. So you see, for example, David, when he's writing Psalm 119, and he, he describes and he says, you know, the, the, your word is a lamp unto my feet, right? What's he talking about? He's been praising the, the law. And so he's referring to the law as the word of God. We also know that John specifically, if you remember this, in chapter 1 of his gospel, refers to Jesus as the word. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then later he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Right. So Jesus is also the word. So when Jesus says that he's the sower and that he's sowing the word, He's meaning a lot of things. Jesus says the sower is a prophet. He is speaking what God has sent him to say. He's proclaiming the word. And Jesus is a sower who's proclaiming the truth of the Old Testament, the truth of the law, the truth of the history. He's bringing all of that into to fulfillment. He's, he's completing it. And Jesus, the sower, is kind of in a weird way, he's sowing himself as the word. He's proclaiming the truth that he's the Messiah. He's saying, here I am. The kingdom's here. Right here. I am the gospel. I am the good news. And he's sowing this seed of the word all over the place. He's not being picky. He's preaching it to all kinds of soils. And I think that that would be a better name for this parable. We often call it the parable of the sower, but the soils are the focus. So I call it the parable of the soils because the soil is representative of the types of hearts that people have. So when Jesus is proclaiming the word, who does he proclaim it to? He he proclaims it to the path soil people. Those who hear the word and they shrug it off. They don't really care. Um, maybe, Maybe they're mad at it and they don't like it, or maybe they just are apathetic and, and let it roll away. Satan comes and snatches it and, and they don't really care about it. He's also proclaiming it to rocky soil people, right? Those people who hear the word and, and they think, well, yeah, that sounds great. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. I want to be on, on God's side. So when his kingdom is here, I don't get crushed. Yeah, Obviously, God's kingdom is the one that's going to win, so I want to be on the, on the good guy's side. I want, to be on, I want to be a winner. But then when the sun of trials and persecution and tribulation and all that hard stuff comes, it gets really hot, and they wither away because they really didn't have roots. They were just excited about, oh, the kingdom's here. Jesus is also proclaiming this word to thorny soil. The people who hear the word and are excited by uh, the moment, maybe. They, they jump on the kingdom of God bandwagon uh, because it's good to be part of a movement. I want to do this. This is awesome. Uh, the healings and exorcisms are really, really neat. Did you see that? Jesus just, just healed that guy who couldn't walk. But then that, that flashiness kind of wears off eventually. And... As it says, the cares of the world, the attraction of riches, all the other desires for pleasure that's out there distracts them. And of course, Jesus is proclaiming the word to good soil, to people who hear the word, who receive it, who love it, who nourish it. 
And it grows in them and produces fruit in their lives. And we see Jesus doing that in the Gospels. We see this happening. People respond to him in these ways. So the primary application of this parable, the first thing we have to say, like, what does this parable mean? Well, the primary thing is, this is about Jesus. It's about Jesus proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, to all kinds of people and how they respond to it and why they're responding that way. That's the first primary application. But we can also bring it to us a little bit more than that, right? Because we have soil too. All people are, have soil hearts, <laughs> if you want to say it that way. And so since we have hearts that are like these soils in this parable, we recognize that we can respond these ways too. And the word of God is still being preached. If we are good soil, we ought to be some of those preachers who are sharing the seed that has been sown in us, that's produced fruit, that we are then able to to scatter abroad even more. So when we hear the gospel, what happens is the type of soil that we are becomes evident. So that has implications for evangelism and it has implications for us as we're just thinking about like how we live a Christian life. And maybe you've experienced this. You've shared the gospel with someone and it just went in one year out the other. They didn't care a thing about it. They dismissed it. Maybe they even said like, that's malarkey, go away. What are you talking about? That's crazy. Or maybe they heard it, but they weren't listening. Maybe you've talked with someone who had kind of a rocky soil heart, and maybe they claimed to believe for a long time, right? They heard the gospel when they were a kid. They walked down an aisle. They prayed a prayer. They got baptized, um, and they, they claimed to have faith for years following. But then some trials come. Someone close to them, really close to them, passes. Maybe uh, they experience a difficult um, illness, or maybe um, they're hurt by people within the church, and so they abandon the faith. They walk away from it. Because they're like, well, why would a loving God allow me to suffer like this? Right? This can't be real. Why is that? It's because they had no real root. They, they fell away because their faith was superficial. Or maybe you've talked to somebody who had thorny soil. What I think is interesting about the thorns, this is, this is one of the things about this parable that really gets me. Um, the thorns don't really represent what you think they should. We would think, if I was making this parable, I would make the thorns like persecution and trials, right? That would make a lot more sense to me. Um, and I would make the sun be like the riches and things like that because that, makes, that seems to make more sense. Because, you know, you need that to actually grow. Sun is necessary for a plant to grow. Thorns aren't. But notice here that, that the thorns are, are the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things. The world offers us all kinds of cares. Things we have to deal with, just naturally. Like, we have to go to work every day. We have to raise kids. We have to deal with difficulties in a marriage. We have to go grocery shopping. We have to buy houses. Whatever it is, we do all kinds of stuff. We have lots of cares. And they demand our attention. They're things which aren't bad. They're good things. They're helpful things. They're necessary things in many ways, but they can also be tremendous distractions to us. Just like riches and pleasure 
Neither one of those things is inherently evil, but we know that riches are deceiving. And we know that chasing down our desires, running after those things, can become at best self-indulgent and at worst downright idolatrous. So a thorny person is someone who, who sees these things that are good things and they make them bad things because they make them into God things. They let other stuff take away the energy that's needed to produce the good plant and they give that energy to these thorny things that are coming up beside it. And we want to be good soil. We want to bear fruit. So then the question we have to ask is, well, what makes good soil good? Good question. What is it that you need to have to be good soil? Well, this passage doesn't tell us that exactly. Right? Well, we hear, we hear this, this parable of Jesus just from the start. He doesn't explicitly say, and this is how you can be good soil. He doesn't tell us outright. But we know, as we're going to see here in just a second, that becoming good soil is only possible through the work of the Spirit. God actually makes us into good soil. We can't cultivate ourselves to become good soil. But once the seed's been planted in us, there is some level of self-cultivation we can do. We might call it sanctification, maybe. Right? So imagine... Think about this. In this example, we have four types of soil. Only the first one doesn't grow at all. The other three sprout. There's a plant there. The rocky soil springs up. The, the thorny soil springs up. The good soil springs There's There's a plant. The difference is, with the rocky soil, there's not roots. So how do you deal with that? We have to root ourselves in something. We have to root ourselves in, in the Word, really, we have to form real and abiding relationships with, with other believers. We have to regularly like commune with God. We need public and private worship and prayer. Because when we have that desire and that longing to like root ourselves in the faith and grow, that shows that we are good soil. And the issue with the thorny soil is the presence of those other plants. Those, those thorns that are competing for the resources that the word seed needs to grow. So if we are good soil, we have to regularly like pluck out the weeds which are growing, competing with the word. Because those things are, are idols and they can choke out the growth of the word in us. So, kind of two big takeaways to think about just this parable in general. First thing, we need to be like Jesus. What do I mean? He's a sower. We should proclaim the word with abandon. We should preach the gospel to all kinds of people. And remember that ultimately God is the one who's bringing growth. We don't grow anything. We scatter seed. We can't determine what kind of soil someone's going to be, so our calling is just to sow it. Just sow the seed. Second thing, Examine yourself. What kind of soil are you revealing yourself to be? Maybe you need somebody 
to help you look at your, your life, look at your heart, and maybe pick out some rocks. <laughs> I don't know. Some things that are preventing you from getting deeply rooted in your faith help you see how to root yourself better. Maybe you need to have somebody come and put on gloves with you and start plucking out those weeds. All those things that are distractions, all those things that are pulling you away from the truth of the gospel. All those things that are growing more than the word is in your life. And finally, remember, God brings growth. He's the one who makes it grow. He sends the sun, he sends the rain. He fertilizes the soil. And then he lets us be the ones who get to produce the fruit for his glory. That's a cool thing. And that could be a sermon. I could stop right there. But I told you this, right? We still have the meat to consider. Don't worry. You're like, oh my goodness, he's already preached a whole sermon and I'm ready to go. No, no, no. Listen, this is so good. I can't let you leave yet. We still have the meat. Let's look at uh, verse 10. Jesus is now, he's away from the crowd with his disciples and he's explaining to them why he teaches in parables. Verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. All right, I just want to pause for just a second. And we can all share in the collective surprise here. Maybe you've already had this moment, but you'll probably remember the moment when you had it. I want to ask for you to raise your hands, but I bet many of you grew up like me with an understanding that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? And the whole purpose of a parable is to help a common, simple man understand complex spiritual truths. But right here, Jesus says, The purpose of parables is exactly the opposite. They aren't meant to serve as an object lesson. They aren't just an illustration to help simple people understand. They're actually intended to cover up the truth, to hide it. They're a secret code that has to be deciphered in order to understand. And the cipher... The thing that breaks the code is knowing Jesus. That's the only way you can break the code. So why is it that these people get to know the secrets of the kingdom of God? Why do they get to understand what the parables mean? Because they know Jesus. Jesus said it back in verse 9. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Who has ears to hear? Those to whom ears have been given by Jesus. The mystery of the kingdom of God is only revealed when we know Jesus. And what's really crazy is this quote from Isaiah that Jesus uses to demonstrate his point. So look at verse 12 again. He says, They may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, so this is from Isaiah chapter 6. Oh, golly. We could spend a lot of time really like diving into Isaiah and it would be so great. And you guys would be like, wow, this is amazing. And then you'd be hungry. So I'm just going to recap for you real quick, okay? In the first five chapters of Isaiah, we have this incredible thing happening because God 
is speaking, he's calling Isaiah to speak to the people Israel and lay out a case against them. He's saying, I have a problem with these people. They're my people, but they aren't acting like it. In the first chapter, he, God calls Israel rebellious children, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. Nice names there. Um, in the second chapter, um, God says that you have forsaken the Lord, and so I'm going to reject you. Okay? In chapter 3, he, uh, he points out how they've mixed and mingled with pagan nations and have become idolatrous through all of that. In chapter 4, he, he, uh, he talks about how they've put their hope in the work of their hands. So they're trusting in man. And so what God says he's going to do is he's going to uh, take away the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and elder, the captain and the man of rank. He's going to take away all the men that they're hoping in, all the men that they think they can put their trust in that are making them powerful and awesome. And he says, I'm going to replace those leaders with children. Then, in chapter 5, the Lord compares Israel to a vineyard. Beautiful passage. But he says, you're a vineyard which I planted. But the vineyard I planted has yielded wild, nasty grapes. And so in verse 5 of chapter 5, God says, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. God is sending Isaiah to say, Your hearts are hard. Your hearts have become hard. You have become path soil. Because you've rejected the Lord as your king, and you've put your trust in man instead. So when we get to chapter 6 of Isaiah, and the first words we see are, in the year that King Uzziah died, what God is, is, is saying, what Isaiah is saying on behalf of God is that this good king, the dependable king, the one that they put their hope in, the king that people could trust, he's gone, and the Lord is now calling Isaiah to bring his word to hard-hearted people. But Isaiah recognizes that he's unworthy. And so you have, again, another beautiful scene where he says, Oh, Lord, I'm a man of unclean lips. And he sends the seraphim over and he gets the little coal and burns Isaiah's lips, right? You remember that? To purify his mouth so that he can speak the word of God. And it says in that passage, it says that he atoned for his sin. God atoned for Isaiah's sin. So now what we have in Isaiah, oh, this is so crazy, you guys, okay, what we have is a messenger, a holy messenger of God bringing the word of the Lord to a people who aren't going to listen to him because of their hard hearts. Does that sound familiar at all? Yeah? And what's Isaiah supposed to say? He's supposed to say exactly what Jesus says, what Jesus quotes. Verse 9 of Isaiah chapter 6 says, And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. The context of this quote from Isaiah is all about the hard-heartedness of these unjust, merciless, man-centered, idled worshipers. And the word of God which Isaiah brings to them is not intended to change them. It's judgment on them. It's God giving them over to exactly what they want. 
He's saying, okay, you want to have hard hearts? I'll harden them even more. You want to have deaf ears? I'll make it where you can't hear. You want to be blind? I'll rip your eyes clean out. So when Jesus quotes these words, he's saying this. The parables have two purposes. One, for you people who are close to me, for those who know me, for you who believe in me, who, who trust in this kingdom that I'm bringing, those who I've called to be near to me, the purpose of the parables for you is mercy. Oh, it's grace. It's unveiling the mystery that's been hidden for ages. It's showing you the secrets of the kingdom. But for those people who have put their hope in man, for those who are trusting in man's rules and man's authority, for those who are looking for a Messiah to be like a new King Uzziah, a wonderful mighty king who will set up a glorious kingdom in which we'll have riches and wealth and happiness like we've never had, who will conquer Rome and make our lives good. For those of you who are merciless and unjust, for those of you who have hard hearts, for those of you who don't have ears to hear, the parables are judgment for you. They're not mercy. They're judgment. Jesus is saying they don't want to understand, so I won't let them. And knowing this brings great clarity to the teaching of Jesus throughout the Gospels. And it's really clear to us here why, why Mark stuck this little bit right here in the middle, why this is the meat of the sandwich. Because the parables reveal what kind of soil a person is. Jason Meyer said it this way. I think this was great. The parables are a little like a metal detector, right? Metal detector makes a sound when it passes over metal underground. Parables are a heart detector for insiders and outsiders. The parables pass over those of hard or shallow or crowded hearts. There's no sound. But when an insider hears the parable, it makes an impact on their heart. They have to know more. They're curious. They don't want to leave Jesus. They want to know him better. They ask questions. They have a deeper thirst, a deeper hunger to understand who Jesus is. And this, like, this sheds light on all of Jesus' teaching for us. You may wonder, like, why is Jesus so cryptic? Why is he saying this in such a hard-to-understand way? This is why. The secrets of the kingdom can only be understood by those who look at those secrets through the lens of knowing Jesus. So the question for all this is, do you have ears to hear? If you know Jesus... Rejoice that you've been given listening ears. You've been given access to the secrets of the kingdom. And guess what? You can go and explore the depth and riches of them. They're right there in that Bible that you have. If you know Jesus, you can bear abundant fruit because you're good soil. Because you have a hunger and a thirst that's your heart saying, I'm good soil. Nourish me more. Help me sprout this word that's been planted in me. Let me produce grain. 
You can overflow with good works. You can proclaim the saving gospel of Christ far and wide if you are good soil. But if you don't know Jesus, listen. I pray that your ears will hear. I pray you will recognize your heart, stony heart. I pray that you will repent of your sin. Run away from it. Beg the Lord to take your heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh, to make it into good soil. Receive the seed of the gospel. Nourish it so that it can produce fruit in your life. You have to come to Jesus and get to know him. And he puts these new listening ears on you These ears so that you can hear him, so that you can listen to his word, and so that you can understand him, so that you can understand what it means to be his. Let's pray. Lord, we are overcome with your goodness, with the the power of the words of Christ. I pray that you will help us to examine our our hearts to help us look at what kind of soil we are showing ourselves to be. Help us rip out things that are distracting. Help us move the stones so that our soil can be deep and our roots can get established. Help us hear. Give us ears to hear your word. Help us to know Jesus better, to love him more to pursue him and his glory in all all of our words, all of our actions, all of our thoughts. Help us to be a church which encourages one another, which comes alongside each other to, to do this gardening work. May we be a people who sow seed all over, proclaiming your gospel. May we get to see it flourish. May we get to see fruit produced 30, 60, 100 times more. But if we don't get to see it, may it be for your glory, your fame, and your honor. We rejoice that you've allowed us to be a part of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to take the Lord's Supper.